0: So tonight you got your little handout there we're talking about the canon Uh, so it's always nice to start off with uh, some definitions introduction so the canon is defined by Wayne Grudem as the canon of Scripture is the list of all the books that belong in the Bible Uh, so what is Scripture Uh, God gave men and women in some cases the ability through the Holy Spirit to write down words that were God's own words and also therefore intended to be part of the canon. So this connection between the Holy Spirit and writing scripture, I've got a couple of verses here that exemplify that. The first one's in John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Then moving on into John 16 when the spirit of truth comes that's the holy spirit he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he, he hears he will speak and he will declare you to you the things that are to come he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you so here's just like the general idea uh, the process of of scripture so we've got the holy spirit is teaching uh, the writers All things, causes them to remember all that Jesus has said in the New Testament, for example, and then guides them into these truths. Uh, Although that's the general idea that it's like breathed out by God, there's lots of complexities and nuances um, to this, to, to Scripture. Scripture is really the culmination of God working. Uh, through writers, scribes, eyewitnesses, other scripture. We see that a lot, especially in the New Testament, that there's a lot of heavy influence between the writers of the New Testament. Um, what's really interesting, and I talk about it a little bit later, is that you know the, the canon, this Old and New Testament as a whole, it spans about 1,500 years, and there's around 40 authors. So it's quite uh, a miracle, in fact, that um, you have... This consistency throughout it, that it's got a, oh, we're going to talk about this when we talk about covenants. It's like these overarching stories and themes that are throughout the Bible. So 1500 years, of course, you got to remember this is, there's significant change in the culture, the people. Um, obviously we have, you know, Christ. And so th- these all add to uh, the miracle that is really, really the canon that we have now. Uh, one of the other interesting things about Scripture is that God doesn't create cookie cutter books, uh, meaning they're not all the same. And so instead, He uses specific people and inspires them in their own style and personality. I like this idea because it exemplifies something about God. Uh, it, it shows that He's like really actually he wants this closeness and genuine relationship with us. Sometimes you may hear non believers. Uh, sort of poke fun of God and say he's this like distant authoritarian despot who you know just wants to like pull your strings but really when you're reading scripture you don't get that impression and in fact it's like a very close intimate um, relationship he's got with the writers inspiring them I think um this, this actually reminded me when I was thinking about that idea, it reminded me of another verse. It's in John 15, 15. I don't think it's in your handouts, uh, this particular one, but, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father. I've made known to you. So here Jesus is like kind of peeling back the curtain, giving us a sort of behind the scenes look. And again, it, it it gives us that sense of closeness and caring and and that comes through uh, in the writers. So I wanted to give an example, a specific example of um, God using somebody's personality in the writings. And I, I use the gospel of Luke. So Luke is a, he wrote um, one of the gospels and he's a physician uh, by training. And so as, as we go through these weeks, we'll get to know each other a little bit more, of course. So me personally, I work in medicine, I work in genetics. And so I, I relate to Luke to some extent uh, on that level. So here I want to read a passage. It's in Luke 13:11 through 13. And he says, And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her, her, called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. So when I read this, actually, so in medicine, when we're like presenting cases or talking about patients, the first thing you give is a history. And this is, this is what uh, Luke does, is he gives her history. She's had this disabling spirit for 18 years and then gives a description of her condition. And in fact, the description he uses are words that were common in the medical literature, like back in ancient times. And so again, this really exemplifies that God is taking Luke and his abilities, personality, and using that. It comes through in the gospel. Um, so the question is like why do I start here I I started our last class our last set of classes with this and and the main reason I like starting off talking about scripture in the canon is because this is um, my personal go-to apologetics so I know we mentioned that a second ago so apologetics is this idea of presenting a rationale or justification uh, for your faith, like what you believe and why do you believe it. So that's and like defending that. That's the idea of apologetics. So if someone were to come to me and say, hey, give me your 30-second uh, elevator speech about you know, your faith, why you believe. And so the first thing I'd say is, well, we, we have the Bible. Like this, this book, this collection of books exists. That's my first point. Second is um, what's written in the Bible has been shown to be accurate and true uh, meaning, and, and transmitted well, meaning like what was said then or written then is also what we have today. And then the third point is that the Bible has profound things to say about God uh, and the truth. And I say the truth, meaning like the gospel, the world as we see it today, this idea of man having sin in their lives and needing a Savior and how Christ fulfills that need. Um, so that's why I'm really passionate about the word, uh, because I feel like it's been tested. That's the other thing, too. People forget, or, you know, a new book will come out. There was one a number of years ago talking about, you know, the real Jesus or the lost gospels, all these kind of things. And it, it makes me chuckle a little bit because, you know, I told you this, this spans 1,500 years. These things have been around a long time. So if there are blatant fallacies, um, secret lives of jesus (laughs) you probably would have a come out uh there'd be serious evidence for it this would be a big deal and so i think that that bodes well for uh how strong the scripture is that it's been around so long and it has been scrutinized seriously for hundreds of years really and and it's still there and sticking around so for that leads me into my next point. So I want to settle in for a second about the accuracy and reliability of the Bible. Uh, I want to touch base first on the New Testament. And so some of this comes from a book. It's by a gentleman, F.F. F. Bruce is his name. He wrote a book called The New Testament Documents. Are they reliable? So the New Testament books are put together based on uh, manuscripts. So manuscripts are handwritten copies of a text They're usually on a animal leather or skin or a flattened plant-based material, depending on where they're from and how old they are. And manuscripts were one of the primary ways to pass on transfer information in ancient times. And so the Bible, of course, follows that uh, tradition. The other way information was passed on uh, in ancient times was, of course, oral tradition. So oral tradition is a, is a significant part of um, the scripture, but it's less reliable. And um, you know, oral tradition can of course change. So one of the, one, another interesting kind of thought experiment is to hold the Bible up to other well-known ancient documents. And a common example used is Homer's Iliad. So Homer's Iliad is a long poem. And it describes battles, for example, during war times. Homer's Iliad has a lot of manuscripts; it's about a thousand, uh, so it's very well established. It was an oral tradition, and it was passed on for a couple of hundred years before actually the first one was written down. So, for for several hundred years, nothing known manuscripts; it was just oral tradition, and then eventually people started writing it down, um, and we've got it. Like I said, about thousand manuscripts. Okay, so for the New Testament books, we have. 5, 000, over 5,000 complete or extensive manuscripts. Uh, not only, so that's a substantial uh, amount. In fact, it's the highest of any ancient text. Um, the manuscripts also date back much closer to the time the events actually took place. So Homer, who's credited with this poem, you know, he, he spoke it or maybe even wrote it down. Uh, but it, like I said, it was hundreds of years before we had actual written copies of it and so there's this idea that the longer it takes to write something down the more likely you are to have myth and legend actually taint the original and so with scripture it not only do we have the most manuscripts but also they date very close to the actual events um, one really important example of this is first corinthians so first corinthians uh, dates back to the 50s so um Christ was crucified at about 30 AD, and so we've got you know, around 20 years that 1 Corinthians is dated to, and it's really important because 1 Corinthians chapter 15 contains key elements of the gospel message emphasizing the importance of Christ's resurrection and claiming more than 500 people had seen the risen Christ. So one main point is these things were written down and documented at a time when these folks were still alive. And so if you had, for, so going back to my other argument, if you had people who were uh, either disagreeing or had evidence against that, they were still alive at the time all this stuff was being written. And so, and, and so Paul, uh, in, his, in his letter, actually said, references this, saying these people are still alive. I've talked to them, you can go talk to them. Um, And so that uh, increases the evidence for it. Now, uh, we do have differences, though, in manuscripts for the New Testament, but they are usually minimal. Uh, And so I came across an interesting article, and it's by this gentleman, Bart Ehrman. He's a New Testament scholar, but he actually argues against the reliability of the Bible. So in an article I read from him, he even recognizes, here's a quote from him, Most of the changes found in our early Christian manuscripts have nothing to do with theology or ideology. Far and away, the most changes are the result of mistakes, pure and simple, slips of the pen, accidental omissions, inadvertent additions, misspelled words, blunders of one sort or another. So we do have some of these differences in the manuscript, but again, uh, they don't change the significant meaning of the passage, for example, that there's this guy, Christ, he was killed. He rose again. He appeared to people, did miracles. These are serious, you know, things that are being reported, right, that have profound meaning. Um, so we don't have differences related to those. I want to touch base real briefly about the, uh, the Old Testament. So um, this, I've got a, a real succinct overview. There's a gentleman, his name's Kenneth Kitchen. He wrote a very uh, well-known book called uh, On the Reliability of the Old Testament. So his main points regarding the Old Testament are this. So the Old Testament describes uh, a lifestyle and economy of shepherds, uh, of movement of people, real wars, cultural traditions. All of these have been described in the Old Testament and actually corroborated by other ancient texts, such as those from Egypt and archeology. span And I think sometimes people lose sight of that too, that really, the Old Testament and the New Testament it opens itself up for serious critique because it is pretty specific often naming Kings naming places uh, in their relationship to other other uh, people as well so it's pretty specific in such a way that if someone were to go about you know that opens you up to being able to disprove it then well like that King didn't exist or this war didn't happen and, I mean, I, I don't have this written down, but a real short side note is, um, so people who are Mormons, the, the Book of Mormon is actually a, a testament of uh, Christ appearing and, and interacting with people in the Americas, uh, indigenous folks. And it actually describes big wars, for example, up in New York. So they're describing millions of people with armor and swords and they're being slaughtered and all this kind of stuff, but really, you know so that's pretty specific, but guess what? there hasn't been any archaeological proof of multiple million casualty wars uh, pre again, we're talking indigenous, Native American, Aztecian Mayan type type society. Um, and, and so scripture does, does the same thing, but has been proven true, whereas, again, the Book of Mormon, this one specific example, there isn't evidence to support these multiple millions war that, that supposedly occurred up in New York. Um, okay, going back to my point. Sorry, I was a little side note there. So uh, here's a quote from, from Kitchen. Uh, the basic texts of Old Testament scripture can be established as essentially soundly transmitted, meaning you know what we have then was what we have now, and the evidence shows that the form and content of the Old Testament fit with known literary and cultural realities of the ancient Near East. <clears throat> it's hard to talk about the Old Testament and its reliability and not mention the Dead Sea Scrolls. So here I want to I give a synopsis. Here, here's a brief overview. So it's 1946. We've got uh, shepherds, and they're up in the northern part of the Dead Sea, and they discover caves. Inside the caves are jars, and in the jars they find lots of different material, and uh, the material are manuscripts. And the manuscripts are, some of it's scripture, okay, spoiler alert, <laughs> but, but some of it's not. Um, I think we found they had found manuscripts that were like letters and grocery lists, uh, laws maybe even, it's a mixed bag of stuff, but these jars have been undisturbed, they're in these caves, and it's actually from a specific uh, Jewish group. and so i'm not I'm not a big jew I'm not a Jewish historian by any means, but if you start to look into it, uh, there are lots of different groups and sects of Judaism. You've got like the Samaritans, you've got uh the Sadducees, the Pharisees, these would be easy examples, um, but there's others. So this is actually, and and just like Christianity, we have lots of different kind of denominations. Judaism had the same thing. I mean, lots of different kind of sects and groups. So this is a very specific uh, group that had uh, these, these very old manuscripts. Okay, so the main discovery is that they had Old Testament manuscripts, that predated what was currently being used so we have the old testament you know what the manuscripts they've been using uh, for our bible these actually predated those by about a thousand years so it's kind of like well this is the perfect time you know we're going to go back a thousand years from where we've been doing is what we've been using accurate has it been transmitted well and the answer, again, is yes, uh, miraculously, in all honesty. So, I give an example. Um, Isaiah 53. So, there's a big section. Uh, like, all of Isaiah 53 is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so, there's 166 words in the chapter um, of Isaiah 53. There's only 17 letters that were called in, into question. Okay, granted, this is over a 1,000 years. Ten of the letters are simply a matter of spelling, so just a misspelling, and so that doesn't affect the, the word. Four more of the letters are minor stylistic changes, such as conjunctions. Um, so like you are, "your," you know, that'd be a conjunction. The remaining three letters uh, comprise the word light, which is added in verse 11, and this does not affect the meaning of the passage. So this um, really was a profound discovery and showed very well that, again, what we had uh, been using had been transmitted a thousand years very accurately. So what's the big deal with Scripture? First thing, Scripture is important for life. Jesus demonstrates this in his response to the temptation. So Jesus is taken out After he's baptized by John the Baptist, and he's going through the temptations, Satan is tempting him. So this is in Matthew 4, 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus here is placing a very high importance on Scripture, and he's using it also to refute direct temptation from Satan. It's it's a a pretty amazing um, thing. Uh, Real quick side note. Jesus and the New Testament authors reference Old Testament passages over 295 times. And so this... This plays a couple it says a couple of things. One is Old Testament is important. You know, we can't just ignore it. And in fact, when Christ appears to so he's he's resurrected and he's walking on his way to Damascus, if I'm correct. No, I'm, I might not be Damascus. He's walk he's on his way and these two two guys come across him on the road and they don't recognize him. Right? And they start questioning him. And Je- or, or Jesus is like, what do you, what's going on? You guys look distressed. And they say, oh, you must be the only one who hasn't heard. Jesus has been killed. And of course, he's Jesus. And it says that he reveals himself to them. And he starts with the prophecies in the Old Testament. So it, it's showing that Jesus himself, to prove that he's the Christ, starts with the Old Testament. And shows how he's fulfilling the prophecies and like he's throughout the Old Testament Um. the other that's one important thing the other important thing is we're gonna see later Peter specifically references Paul in his writings and so they're contemporaries again so the canon hasn't been established you know the New Testament hasn't been truly formed but the letters are out there so Peter says that Paul's writings are on par with the Old Testament so that's another real uh, important piece about why is it important that the New Testament authors are referencing the Old Testament because they're putting the New Testament writings on the same par. Um, so I'll get into that a little bit more in a sec. So how was the canon chosen? Uh, because So because of its significance that's important for life, it's important to ask then what's considered the Word of God? So the early church could use a combination of factors to establish canon. Apostolic... Apostle- <laughs> the apostles endorsed it. Uh, consistency with the rest of scripture and the perception of a writing as God breathed on the part of the uh, of an overwhelming majority of believers so one of the main points to recognize scripture is that as we read it the Holy Spirit is using it to teach encourage and bring people to salvation spreading the gospel Uh, the impact on lives is a critical piece uh, of scripture and, and especially the New Testament Okay, so real briefly, the Old Testament. So we've got Moses, who wrote the first four books, followed by the historical books. That's like Joshua, Samuel, Ezra. Then you've got the books of poetry and wisdom. That's David, Solomon, and some others. Then we've got the prophets, major and minor. So there's about a dozen authors. Some of them are unknown and and were like chronicling events and kingdoms and wars, for example. The Old Testament canon, or the Hebrew Bible, was finished in 435 B.C., And it was recognized that the Holy Spirit, so regarding the inspiration of writing scripture, had departed from Israel after the latter prophets. This interpretation comes from primarily the Talmud. The Talmud is a collection of rabbinic writings, and it covers anything and everything that has to do with being a Jew the law traditions interpretation of of scripture all that's collected in this big uh, group called the talmud so it was recognized that look these are god inspired and that's it the new testament so we've got the gospels and acts so that's matthew and john who were uh, disciples mark and luke were not disciples but they were companions to paul then you've got a bunch of paul's letters followed by Revelation, and Revelation was written by John, who also wrote the Gospel of one of the disciples. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. So the formation of the New Testament can be summarized like this. So first we've got manuscripts of the Gospels and letters, uh, among some other writings. They're actually being spread and shared as the Gospel advanced. So people are sharing them, copying them, sharing them, taking them with them as they travel. Uh, so it was like a word of mouth. Um, it's kind of like the early going viral. So now, you know, information spreads around the world literally in seconds. But of course, then it didn't work that way. Uh, but so this is how it spread is physical. People ch- taking the letters, sharing them. Hey, I heard you have this one. Let me make a copy of it. Uh, yeah, we've got this one. And Paul, in fact, in his one of his letters, um, I think it's in the to the Corinthians, he says you should be, you know, so the the person who delivered that letter to them, he says, they have a letter of mine that I wrote to this other church, Laodicea. But actually the, that that letter uh, didn't make it into the canon. It uh, wasn't considered, uh, you know, God breathed like his letter to Corinthians. But there's references to this idea of, again, these letters being spread around and shared. Uh, so it's going viral, all these, all these letters and manuscripts are going viral, it became clear that specific, writing, excuse me, specific writings were kind of rising to the top. They were consistently being the most impactful, having an impact on people's lives, being effective when it comes to salvation. Uh, and then the third part of the formation of the New Testament canon is that writers themselves reference each other on par with the Old Testament. So this is where I was, I was mentioning this earlier with Peter and Paul. So here's the example. It's in Second Peter 3.16. So here Peter's referring to Paul. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do with other scriptures. So that last piece is the important part. It is a kind of funny to think, you know, you've got Paul's contemporary in scripture saying, you know, some of the things you're writing are are hard to understand. <laughs> dude Um, but the important part is he's saying these things are on on par with scripture another nuance to this is you have to take into account that Paul and Peter are serious and high up Jewish individuals Paul says he is a Jew of Jews this guy's a Pharisee so what does it take to be a Pharisee you have to have essentially all of the Hebrew Bible memorized. So you, they start as a kid. So scripture, of course, and, and God in the Old Testament especially, you know, calls Jewish people to really dwell on his word, teach it to their kids, meditate on it day and night. It's a big deal. And so to become a Pharisee, you've got to memorize all this stuff. So it, to me, this is a big deal. These are two gentlemen who understand the Hebrew Bible to an extent, you know, we won't because, again, they they've, were bred in it and, and memorized the whole thing. And so he, it's a big deal when he's now saying, look, what he's written is on the same playing field as the Hebrew Bible. <clears throat> You'll sometimes hear that it's councils and decrees that put the canon together and there were important councils and letters um, from like a church hierarchy standpoint but in reality what those councils were doing is putting their stamp of approval on what was already known okay it wasn't like these secret society got together and cherry-picked individual writings because again all this stuff has gone viral so people have access to a lot of these writings and so as a Christian community across cultures, across different ge- geographic regions, it's being well recognized. This is what God breathed. And so the councils actually simply put the stamp of approval on that. Some of it might have been political at the time, and some of it also was because of prosecution. So Christians, very early, you've got, you know, um, Stephen, the Levite, he gets stoned. You know, he's one of the founding fathers really early you've got Christians being killed for their beliefs so it makes sense that at some point as a faith we have as a community we've got to say what are we willing to die for you know what is like the stuff that we're gonna these guys again they're being burnt at the stake they're being tortured they're being you know hot oil poured down their throats this is serious stuff right so the councils, some of it has to be. Look, what are we gonna put our lives on the line for? And they put their stamp of approval on what we have as the New Testament. Um, the one of the early, the earliest, like collection or um, you know what we have today as our New Testament goes all the way back to 367. And it's in a letter from Athanasius, who was the Bishop of Alexandria. He gives the exact list of books that we have as the New Testament. And he's the one one that uses this word canonized in regard to that set of books. Uh, Here's a quote from the letter, actually. Appointed by the fathers to be read by those who newly join us and who wish for instruction in the word of godliness. So he's referencing this idea that this is the stuff you want to be teaching and that has been shown to be effective. Let's talk about some aspects of God's Word. First aspect I've got there, uh, inerrancy, without error. God's Word is true and it also claims to be true. Proverbs 35. So I'm going to go through a bunch of scriptures here as we go through these. um, And they're, they're in your handout. So Proverbs thirty-five: Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. So a common response to this is, you know, how do we know what we have now is consistent with what was written then, or how reliable is it? We've talked about that already, but a couple of highlights. So this, and these are quick responses. One, the Bible is historically accurate. Two, it's internally consistent. And three, details of uh, detailed prophecies. Are fulfilled hundreds of years later so this is showing uh, proof of the reliability of Scripture <clears throat> real quick side note we hold Scripture to be inerrant in its original language uh, even even uh, recently I was listening to a sermon they were talking about how s- somewhat silly it is that we the common picture depiction of Jesus is this white European man and of course reality you know he's this Near East uh, Jewish individual so he didn't look like us or, and I, or you, know, I, you know if you guys are Jewish I don't know <laughs> didn't look like me I'll speak to my, for myself right okay so he didn't look like me um, and so we don't adhere we don't say that the English you know, is the inerrancy, because the scripture wasn't written in English. It's translated, of course. Uh, so it's written in ancient Hebrew, ancient Aramaic, and ancient Greek. And so that's what we hold to as being inerrant. Um, okay, so we talk about, I, I mentioned the prophecies. I really, The prophecies are a really cool thing to do a deep dive on. There's around 190 prophecies that Jesus fulfills. Um, And people have gone into like the statistic, you know, the probability that that happens by coincidence and all this kind of thing. Of course, it's an astronomically impossible number that an individual could fulfill these prophecies, again, written so, so long ago. Um, One of the examples, so one example I want to give, I like giving specific examples. So Jesus, his coming, when he's born, is predicted where, when, how, And is followed actually by the wise men the Magi it's in Daniel 9 so if you're looking for something to uh, study Daniel 9 and look into like how again so Daniel 9 this is a thousand more than a thousand years before Jesus is born okay how did the Magi you know you hear the Christmas story First of all, the Magi weren't there right when he was born. It took him a while to get there. But it's an interesting story. Look into, like, how did they know where to go and when to go and stuff to find Jesus? And they eventually, you know, meet up with um, Herod, you know, and say, where's this king? And that's when Herod's like, we've got to find this guy and kill him because I don't want to have any other kings. Anyway, so that's a good, good uh, little deep dive if you want to do that. Okay, second point, seven, second aspect, clarity. The Bible can be understood and has specific meaning. Sometimes you'll hear people say like, well, this verse might mean that to you, but really what it's saying to me is this. And, I, I, and of course, it's well recognized that God can use Scripture in a lot of ways and speaks to people individually and personally. But you cannot lose fact that this is they're writing specific words to a specific people and it's from a person, you know. They're saying these things to someone, and you, so you can't you know, take them out of context, for example. Uh, you also have to see them in that context. You gotta put yourself back in their time frame you know, to really get a good idea. So the Bible can be understood, it has specific meaning, Deuteronomy 6, six through seven, and these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Psalm 119, 130, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So if it didn't have a specific meaning, you couldn't teach anything about it, because it was like, well, that doesn't teach it to me, you know what I mean? Third aspect, necessity. Why is Scripture necessary? One, knowledge of the gospel. How else are you going to know about Jesus? I wasn't there. (laughs) You weren't there. Second, scripture is necessary for spiritual growth. God uses lots of tools in your life to mature you and bring you closer to him. But scripture is going to be one of, if not the number one way he does it. Number three, knowledge of God's will. How do we know what God wants from us unless he tells us and it's written down? Romans ten thirteen through seventeen, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So this has got to be, you know, our first and foremost. This has has got to be first and foremost, because everything falls into place after this, that once a person is saved and receives the Holy Spirit. So the point I'm bringing up is scripture is huge. It's necessary. This This is the biggest deal, meaning the gospel and bringing people to salvation. That's step one um and you you all of us here know that you know know, christian faith it's a long walk it's a long journey and there's wilderness There's times there's highs and lows mountain experiences valley experiences and god brings us through all of those and matures us through them but again the beginning of that journey is salvation the gospel this is from scripture that's the connection i'm making Uh, Here's another verse, Isaiah 55, it's in chapter, Isaiah 55, uh, verses 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Um Here's another, uh, okay, so, uh, that those, so that Romans verse and the Isaiah verse are specifically addressing knowledge of the gospel, the necessity of knowledge of the gospel. Okay, so this next, this next verse is addressing spiritual growth. 1 Peter uh, 2, 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So the word is necessary to teach and mature us. The third point of necessity was knowledge of God's will, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all all the words of this law. So again, God's above us. He's outside of us. We cannot reach up to him and make discoveries but rather he's the one that has to reach down to us and communicate to us about him. That's the only way we know about his nature, about the gospel, is him revealing to us, and it's primarily through scripture, special, specific revelation. <clears throat> Another part, okay, last aspect. I know I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get through this quickly. <laughs> The last aspect uh, that I want to go talk about is sufficiency. Okay, Scripture contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting Him completely, and for fully obeying Him. Uh, the verse uh, there is in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that Scripture, which are able to make you wise for, fel- for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Real short, quick side note. The John, 3, 6, John three sixteen. Second Timothy three sixteen, that's how I remember the the, um, the reference. It's my favorite verse in the Bible, Second Timothy three sixteen. This is a true story. Uh, this all scripture is breathed out by God. That word breathed out by God is theonustos in the Greek theo. Uh, being God. Neustos, it comes from pneuma. It's this idea of like spirit. It's elemental. It's used other places. Um, in Genesis, in Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed the man, of, uh, the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So this word he uses, theo neustos talking about scripture is similar to the life that God breathes into us, into Adam at the very beginning. Um, So there's this, it really gives a sense that, you know, scripture and it talks about this too, um, that it's alive, it's breathing, um, it's effective. All right, part of the class is a serious emphasis on application. So I've got some application points here. First point we need to believe and do what the Word says. This is probably the most important application piece you could take away from tonight. We just talked about how Scripture we have is reliable, same as long ago. When you read it, it has important, profound things to say, implications for your life. So, for example, Jesus gives us the, great, uh, the greatest commandment. So, you know, the, um, somebody's testing him or asks him, Ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Uh, Talking about the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. All the laws wrapped up into these. So God, like Jesus, this is, he's like talking to us. I mean, he's talking to believers, right? And he's telling you, like, these are things you need to do. You need to love God first and you need to love your neighbor. These are the most important things you can do. Uh, And we need to respond to that. Second thing. Um We need to know the Word. So God calls us people to know His word, Colossians 3:16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So the best way to know His word is to read it, memorize it. We just talked about how God uses His Holy Spirit to help us recall Scripture. Uh, we also have access to more information than anybody else in church history. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, those who have ears, let them hear. What he's saying is like, if you get this stuff, listen up. And so it always convicts me because more than any other time in, in church history, we have the ears to hear, you know, <clears throat> excuse me. The, commentation, the, common, uh, the commentaries that are out there, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you can go online and Google it and see pictures. You know what I mean? So it, it can fix me because, um, <clears throat> because of course, I think like we have ears to hear and God holds us responsible to that. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> All right, third thing, we need to talk about the word, Joshua 1, eight. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. So that you may be careful to do according, be careful to do according to all that is written in it. So this explicitly shows this connection between meditation and action that we just talked about earlier. So taking all these lessons into account, we we should be quick to reference and talk about the word. You know, use it as a foundation. Uh, our rationale, reasoning. Um, Our identity, for example, you know, shouldn't really come from our career and our accomplishment. Rather, it's our faith in Christ, and this, you know, is reflected in fruits of the Spirit. Um, So, you know, in conversations with our family, friends, uh, at work, you know, you don't have to, of course, just, you know, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't, like, thump people over the head with the Bible, but at the same time, it makes sense that we should be quick to talk about scripture or at least the ideas in scripture, this idea of loving your neighbor, right? We're talking about racial justice and reconciliation right now. Um, And there's some serious hurt out there. And God calls us to be loving our neighbor. And we're supposed to exemplify that. And that comes not from ourselves. It comes from God in the scripture. And so we should feel confident and comfortable, you know, using that as our foundation. I really appreciate you guys coming tonight. I wanna hear from you. Um, Let me stop.